0: Let me ask you a question. What is your most irrational fear? <laughs> Great first question. Uh, I definitely have a bunch of irrational fears. I think my most recent one is that my new wife secretly wants like five kids. She's <laughs> assured me that's not the case. But I secretly think she wants to build up this giant clan,
1: right? Yeah, we're gonna find out in like 20 years that it turns out it was true. What's
0: your irrational um, fear?
1: Uh, I have like a, an abiding fear of turbulence on flights, but my particular n- nuance on it, I mean, I fly all the time. Right. But, um, I have no fear at all during takeoff and landing, which are like the two times when planes actually crash when they crash. So my fear is exclusively midair turbulence when we're coasting, which is like never a problem for planes. What, um, what is your most rational fear?
0: You know, my most rational fear is the rise of artificial intelligence, I think. And I'm not talking about uh, the sentient kind of AI that decides the human race should be enslaved or completely
1: obliterated. Right. That's like the the Elon Musk slash Terminator slash Matrix version of the AI dystopian future.
0: Yeah, Skynet, Terminator Judgment Day. I'm talking about a, a more sly, insidious kind, the kind that pushes large large swaths of humanity out of the economy without us realizing it until it's too late. You know, we're already dealing with the political consequences today of this huge part of the country feeling economically marginalized, and I'm not saying that there won't be these extraordinary benefits and, like, super cool applications of AI, but my fear is, is uh, just as high as my excitement level, and I'll admit something. My wife runs a small team of engineers experimenting with automation and artificial intelligence in the world of finance and insurance. So both my irrational and rational fears are pretty close to home, which I'm now just
1: realizing as I talk out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should probably, I love you, Sandy. <laughs> you should probably check on that. You should talk to yeah. somebody, I think. Uh, my most rational fear, and I feel that this is the most rational fear that everyone should have, is the fear of a widespread cyber attack on the power grid. Um, Every single time that I read anything about it or hear anything about it, basically it's somebody telling me that this is a serious, immediate threat that we are not prepared for and that could hit us at any time. So I'm terrified about it. You know,
0: I am too, and that's uh, why we're having this conversation today. It's Halloween, and since uh, we'd probably get fired if we sat in front of the TV all day watching Stranger Things on Netflix, we decided to fire up the microphones and talk about a threat that has... Executives, politicians, and white hat hackers trembling. Grid security. From Green Tech Media, this is the Interchange Weekly Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation, the Halloween edition. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston, back in action with my co host, Shale Khan, who's been. Uh, Taken up the helm for me, has had some great interviews while I've been away. He, of course, is our senior vice president and the head of GTM research. Howdy, Shale.
1: Hey, Stephen.
0: You know, no sense in beating around this one. Before we actually start the show, you've got a pretty major piece of news that you announced in a spectacular piece at GTM this week, although the news itself is not so spectacular for us.
1: Yeah, um, I'm as of the end of this month, as of the end of November, going to be moving on from GTM. It's been, uh, I've been at GTM for eight and a half years. I started in early 2009 when the solar industry in the U.S. was 136th the size that it is today. And, uh, it's been an absolutely fantastic run. I absolutely love the organization, the company, the people. I'm really proud of the work that we've done. But it is time for me to take on some new challenges. So I'm going to be moving on. But uh, I'm not going to disappear entirely. I'm going to still retain an association and a relationship with GTM. I'll continue to be a senior advisor to the team at gtm the team at wooden Mackenzie, our parent company and their power and renewables practice that they're building and most importantly for this audience i will continue to record the interchange um i would continue to record the interchange even if i had to pay to do it so i'm not going anywhere on this podcast
0: Fun fact about Shale, he started off as
1: an enterprise carbon analyst, right? Well, in theory. So in 2009, so GTM was like nine people when I joined uh, in 2009. It was really early in the company's tenure. And at that time, we were already sort of starting to cover solar, solar. Uh, And we we weren't really covering anything else, but it looked like carbon markets were going to be a big thing. So I was hired initially to be a carbon market analyst. I had done a fair bit of work on carbon and renewable energy credit markets before joining GTM. But before my first day, the company decided to make a strategic turn uh, or a pivot in startup world, as happens so often in companies that young, and decided that they wanted to double down on solar instead. So I got a note prior to my first day on the job saying, hey, actually, we want you to write a report on the solar market in the US. And not knowing how to be brief at that point in my life, I then spent the next six months writing what ended up being a 376-page report on solar in the United States in 2009. Shales
0: rise at gtm to eventually head up the entire research outlet speaks to you know his ability we've been incredibly fortunate to have him leading this company in his capacity and you know we owe a lot to to your ability to see trends before a lot of folks do you know finding new creative outlets is important of course we're sad to see you go but it's totally understandable and i guess i'm the lucky one in all this because i still get to podcast with you
1: yeah, it's mostly I just wanted to still have a, an excuse to hear your voice once a week. So proud to still have that.
0: Well, onward, uh, you know, we're gonna take Shale all for ourselves here on the podcast and we're gonna benefit from his continued analysis. If you get a chance, go read his article, which he is calling his Swan Song.
1: The basic thesis is that we've you know, as renewable energy has grown over the past few years and gotten cheaper and cheaper, the prevailing wisdom that used to exist within this sector that renewables had to get cost competitive before they could ever be taken seriously. We're sort of past that now. I think everybody takes the idea that renewables are already cost competitive in many cases and will continue to be more so as a given. But I think that it's sort of a false peak if you're trying to think about the long game future of of decarbonization on the grid, because there's now another mountain to climb, which is a new prevailing wisdom about whether – renewable energy and adjacent technologies are going to pose a threat to the stability of the grid. And basically the case that I'm making in the article is that um one of the reasons that that is the prevailing wisdom is that the markets really just haven't adapted yet to enable all these new technologies, be they renewable energy or energy storage, electric vehicles, demand response. Ha- the markets haven't adapted to allow these technologies to provide essential reliability services and resiliency and basically benefit the stability of the grid. They have the capacity to do that already today from a technological standpoint, but the markets don't reward it. So I'm just trying to point out a bunch of ways in which you can unleash the future of these technologies even faster than it's already happening now and avoid some of the the barriers that we're going to come upon soon, if you just look at the ways in which the market was not designed with this new suite of technologies in mind, and figure out ways to redesign it accordingly.
0: It's really reflective of the changes that are happening so quickly in real time that we're trying to capture on this show. And uh, you talked about the worries about renewables causing threats, which does bring us to the topic at hand. Today's conversation is about sort of a combination disaster flick and cat and mouse political thriller, if we're talking in horror movie terms, since it encompasses extreme weather, hacking, and political espionage. Shale and I sat down with a very smart guy, Dr. Paul Stockton, an international security expert who's based in Washington, D.C. Calling Paul a security expert probably doesn't do him justice. He's got... A lot of credibility on this issue. Currently, he's the managing director of Sonicon, where he advises utilities and other operators of critical infrastructure on a wide range of security threats. Before that, he was assistant secretary of homeland defense and America's security affairs at the Department of Defense. Where he directed the agency's response to Superstorm Sandy and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. He currently sits on the Homeland Security Advisory Council. So he's well aware of the security threats facing utilities and the government. I first spoke with Paul for an ebook that I wrote a few years back on the response to Sandy, which happened almost exactly five years ago. And since then, the threats to the grid have only gotten worse. So Shea, why did grid security jump out to you as an appropriately grim topic on this Halloween
1: week? Well it was funny. We were talking last week and we decided to do a Halloween episode. And, and you said, all right, let's talk about something scary. And immediately cybersecurity popped into my head because it's one of these things that like, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about as evidenced by the fact that we haven't done an episode on it on this podcast yet. We've done lots of episodes on lots of different things. It, you know, to me, it sort of often sits outside. We talk about all these other transitions that are going on that have a big impact on cybersecurity, but we don't take it head on a whole lot, despite that. Every single time I run across something on cybersecurity it terrifies me and my natural reaction is just to sort of shove it off to the side and think okay somebody's going to have to fix that but but thank god there are people out there who are working on it um but I think you know in the spirit of Halloween and and addressing our fears head on it was important to actually understand what these threats are really about and what we can and should be doing to deal with them what stood out in this conversation to you Well, one thing that stood out is that um, I need to develop cooler terminology for the things that I talk about because Dr. Stockton uses all these sort of defense terms that I really like, like threat vectors and attack vectors and spear phishing. And I just don't feel like I have cool enough terminology for the things. That I write Should we about. just
0: start a hacking podcast then and pretend like we know what we're
1: talking about? Probably. I mean, we'd sound cooler than we do now. I'm pretty sure <laughs> of that. Um, but I don't know. Besides that, he reinforced for me that the that there is a there's a real threat. Um, and in fact, you know, in all likelihood, there are. There are threats kind of lurking already within the power grid. There, We've been compromised. Utility systems have been compromised. We don't exactly know where. We don't know the magnitude of them. And the, maybe the scariest thing about what he talked about is the idea that the attacks that we've seen in the past, the large-scale attacks outside the U.S. and places like the Ukraine, they're not really a model to look after to figure out what's going to happen here because he thinks that, you know, whoever the adversaries are who are attacking us, they're going to save their best stuff for when they really go after the U.S. So we just don't know what it's going to look like. So, you know, on one hand, I'm absolutely terrified. Um, And on the other hand, you know, he made some good points about what we should be doing and can be doing. And, you know, and and he's made the point that there is active effort going on to deal with this and that, you know, perhaps it is actually pretty well-recognized the magnitude of the threat. And while we don't have it completely under control, we sort of collectively know that we need to be dealing with it.
0: Well, without further preamble, let's go to our conversation with Dr. Stockton. We had about 30 minutes on the phone with him from his office in Washington, D.C., and we caught up with him on Skype. At what point in your career did you realize there were these enormous security threats to the electric grid? Was there a moment in time specifically where those threats became clear to you?
2: I got a rude awakening shortly after arriving in the Pentagon to serve as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Defense. A few months prior to my arrival, the Defense Science Board had issued a study uh, called uh, More Fight Less Fuel that for the first time examined the Department of Defense's a dependence on the energy sector, and especially the electric power grid uh, that provides electricity to critical defense installations. That study found that DOD was at risk in terms of being able to ensure that it could carry out its uh, critical uh, functions if adversaries were to adopt a deeply asymmetric strategy. And that is, instead of attacking those installations directly, go after the electric power grid on which they depended. So I uh, made it a point of emphasis in my tenure from that very moment to try to build the Department of Defense into a more effective partnership with the electric power industry and begin to take into account the risk of this asymmetric strategy and build the resilience of uh, DOD energy infrastructure inside the fence and reach out to grid owners and operators outside the fence line so in partnership we could strengthen the resilience of the grid as a whole.
0: I was at a NARUC conference a couple years back, And I always cite this quote that I heard from, I believe it was a regulator. I actually don't remember exactly who said this quote, but it's just so good and I think illustrates the problem. He said, there are two types of utilities, uh, a utility that's been hacked and a utility that doesn't know it's been hacked. And I I thought that that summed up the situation quite appropriately. Do you think that's accurate?
2: Absolutely. Uh, We have... Behavior by potential adversaries today uh, going forward to map the networks of critical utilities uh, in place if they can advance persistent threats to provide for continuous access to critical control systems. Indeed, everything that the adversary would need to do in order to prepare the battlefield and be ready at a time of their choosing to attack the grid via cyber means.
1: So to dive into that a little bit deeper, you've written a little bit about this black energy campaign that the Department of Homeland Security underwent in 2014, which identified some of the ways in which we already have been or could have already been compromised. Can you talk a little bit more about what that campaign was and what it found?
2: Uh, Sure. Uh, What the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Energy and their industry partners discovered was there was a sustained campaign to emplace advanced persistent threats onto infrastructure networks to enable adversaries to come in when they wanted and uh, attempt to disrupt the grid. But more recently, in fact, just over the last few weeks, uh, the uh, Department of Homeland Security has issued a warning that I hope all of your uh, listeners will be able to uh, take a look at, and that is... uh, the advanced persistent threat activity in October that's been targeting the energy uh, sector as a whole. So we need to understand that although black energy was sophisticated uh, at its time and took uh, many, many months to be detected, even with the most sophisticated techniques available to the U.S. government, that is old history. The sophistication and potential threat posed by ongoing adversary efforts to emplace advanced persistent threats, APTs, on critical control systems and other network components of the power grid, that's the reality we're living in today. So the question is not when uh, adversaries are going to continue to build on black energy. Uh, that That is going forward now, and we should assume that that activity will continue, including by nations such as North Korea that I used to think were a lesser threat, they're catching up fast.
1: There's this sense from all these existing reports that we've seen that are terrifying that that you know the grid has already been compromised in many different ways, in many ways that we probably don't even know about. But simultaneously, as far as I know, we haven't yet seen an actual widespread blackout in the United States or brownout that was driven by a cyber attack. Is that correct? And if so, why haven't we seen that yet?
2: That's correct. The United States hasn't suffered a wide area blackout caused by a a cyber attack. Uh, That, of course, has occurred in Ukraine twice now. But the United States has not experienced an equivalent event. And the reason is adversaries who have the capabilities to attack the grid have decided that the time is not right to do so. This is a card that they're preparing to be able to play in the future if they need to. Uh, None of the potential adversaries of the United States are eager for war. And, of course, the United States uh, has uh, response capabilities, uh, especially in the non-cyber realm, uh, that if the president were to choose could be overwhelming, could be crushing. So the deterrence of cyber attacks on the power grid relies not only on our ability to uh, respond in kind, but to use all tools of uh, U.S. power in order to respond. That's why we haven't suffered an attack yet. Adversaries haven't felt the time is right, and there is a threat of overwhelming response uh, by the United States should an attack occur.
0: You mentioned the Ukraine hacks, and these are probably some of the most prominent uh, hacks in recent memory. Uh, the most recent one, I think, was last December that left quarter million people in the dark. And a lot of people uh, believe that Russian hackers helped by the Russian government used Ukraine as a testing ground for a bigger hack on the U.S. And as you implied, they're sort of waiting for the right moment. What what do we know about what leads experts to, to think that this was, you know, Russian-sponsored and that, and that, in fact, they're waiting to use this type of hack for the American grid?
2: I don't believe that's accurate. Okay, I don't think they're going to use uh, Ukraine-style uh, threat vectors to attack the United States. If Russia or some other advanced uh, potential adversary is going to strike the United States for sure, they are going to use tools that we have never seen before. They're keeping the good stuff in their back pockets and are not going to reveal their most capable weapons until the attack occurs, because otherwise, of course, we could begin to prepare defenses against those more sophisticated threat vectors. Ukraine is nothing compared to what might uh, uh, come up uh, uh, to attack the United States. But I think there are valuable lessons learned from the Ukrainian event that can help us prepare against these more sophisticated attacks.
1: Can you give an example of a lesson we can learn from the Ukraine attack?
2: I'd be pleased to. Uh, One of the uh, uh, features of the Ukrainian uh, uh, response was the ability of grid operators to use manual controls in order to very quickly restore... uh, the uh, power systems. So uh, although the outages were widespread, uh, power was quickly restored because even though the uh, control networks and control systems for automated control had been compromised and in some cases wiped, that is, rendered incapable of functioning, grid operators were able to fall back on communication systems and manual operations mechanisms that enabled them to restore and maintain power. There are some valuable lessons for grid resilience for the United States. I'm not saying we should go back to uh, the uh, way in which uh, the grid used to operate on manual control. I am saying that having fallback communications and the ability to run the grid in some maybe less than optimal way, without having uh, SCADA systems, without having industrial control systems. That is absolutely essential, and important progress is underway by the power industry in order to make that possible. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's interesting. So you're talking about the ways in which the increasing digitization of the grid can serve as a a hindrance for cybersecurity, or at least the need to, to have some redundancy because these systems that we're building are so powerful in terms of the operation of the grid. I wanted to also ask you about distributed energy and Mm -hmm. the growth of things like rooftop solar with smart inverters, demand response. um, You've written about those and and used a phrase that I liked in in a report that you wrote that they present new attack surfaces for adversaries. I think I've also heard an argument on the opposite side, which is that you have, you know, with increasingly a distributed grid, you have less single points of failure. So, how do you think about the increasingly distributed nature of the grid in terms of its impact on our preparedness for a cyber attack?
2: Distributed generation, properly hardened against attack, can be very helpful in terms of strengthening overall grid resilience. My concern, of course, is that in the rush to deploy uh, smart grid technologies, smart inverters, and everything associated with a distributed generation that is connected to the Internet and that has, in some cases, connectivity to wireless systems uh, that are not uh, well secured. We're opening up attack vectors. We're creating new attack surfaces that adversaries can use in order to take down those sources of generation or uh, manipulate load in the case of uh, smart meters, uh, greatly increasing um, or decreasing load at the um, at the whim of an adversary uh, could present uh, problems for maintaining uh, grid stability. With the Internet of Things and everything connected uh, and everything dependent on electricity, uh, you could imagine. Uh, new attack vectors that uh, go beyond distributed uh, denial of service attacks and actually manipulate the Internet of Things in order to create grid instabilities.
1: Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that example, but it's an interesting one just to, to draw it out and make it more specific. So you're talking about, imagine that there are, you know, tens of thousands of people in an area who have Nest thermostats or smart thermostats. If somebody were able to hack into all of those and basically turn up the power or turn up the heat or something like that, turn up the AC for everybody simultaneously, that could cause a spike in load that would then take down the grid in a, in a local area.
2: Do you feel like... Or flip side, uh, eliminate load uh, and have uh, problems created from the other direction. This is an example of the way that we need to think, that your listeners need to think, about opportunities to both modernize the grid, which is essential and uh, and has important benefits, but the imperative to build security into these devices right from the start, because otherwise adversaries are going to exploit them.
0: If you talk to different vendors, they will all say we take security very seriously and we're, you know, we're focused on hardening our products to the greatest degree possible. With that said, we have seen some occasional software breaches in building energy management systems where buildings that are connected to the internet have holes where you could access the elevator systems, um, the lighting systems, maybe uh, actual energy systems themselves. We've seen hackers experiment with trying to break into Nest thermostats. So far, they haven't been remote hacks. They've, you know, you need actual physical access to the device, but there have been um, occasions where Internet of Things appliances like smart TVs have been hacked into and they've been the result of a, of a phishing attack. So mm-hmm. these things do exist. They seem kind of scattered and limited, and limited. But uh, you know, I want your reaction to what vendors are saying. Many of them claim they're taking very seriously security. But uh, I take it that that uh, maybe because you know how bad these threats are, you don't think they're taking it seriously enough, or they could be doing a lot more. What are your opinions on that?
2: I think uh, vendors are, by and large, taking these threats seriously. The problem is the threats are accelerating in terms of sophistication so rapidly that more needs to be done in order to stay ahead of of the new attack vectors uh, that are being created. So it's very, very important that you've mentioned spear phishing because the degree of uh, sophistication of these spear phishing attacks, as described in the recent DHS reports, on uh, advanced persistent threats this October. It's incredible how carefully tailored these spear phishing attacks are and the degree to which adversaries are going after vendors as a key opportunity to embed malware on utility frameworks. They're going after the vendors because that's a terrific opportunity for exploitation. Uh, It makes all the more important that vendors continue to strengthen the security of their products because they are being targeted as a prime means of uh, striking the grid. These, uh, In the uh, DHS report, they're called staging targets. That is, threats uh, and malware installed on tools that uh, will provide the basis for subsequent attacks via uh, vendor-supplied uh, equipment, services, and software.
1: Okay, so now that we're sufficiently frightened, um, I want to transition to talking about what to do in the wake of a cyber attack. You wrote a really great report a little while back that looked at the response in the northeast of the U.S. to Sandy, the hurricane that actually um, by coincidence is it's we're hitting the 5 year anniversary of Sandy like right now. So you talked about the response to Sandy which you are intimately involved in and the lessons we can take from that and also the differences between responding to a superstorm that takes out the grid like Sandy was versus what might come out of a cyber attack. So can you tell us just a little bit in broad strokes about um, how the response to Sandy worked and what we can and can't learn from it if we're thinking about cyber threats.
2: One of the reasons that electric companies restored power so quickly in Sandy is that the utilities right there in the stricken region didn't have to respond only with their own resources. 70,000 linemen and other uh, utility uh, workers flowed to... Stricken region from all across the United States, including the West Coast and Canada, in order to bolster the resources available to repair and restore equipment. That is a model of mutual assistance that's served the United States uh, very well in Sandy and other uh, storm events. And progress is going forward very rapidly now to build on that uh, model and create a cyber mutual assistance system so that a utility hit by a cyber attack would be able to turn to other utilities partner utilities and get access to uh, resources for repair over and above of their own but this case of cyber mutual assistance also exemplifies the key differences between preparing for a storm such as sandy and a cyber attack because in sandy utilities on the west coast knew that they could send their scarce repair assets, people and equipment, to the New York, New Jersey area because Sandy wasn't going to hit them. You can track a storm path, you know where it's going, and if you're out of the impact zone, then it's, a lot, it's relatively easy to share resources cyber attacks could occur potentially on a nationwide basis. So if a cyber attack occurs on a utility in one state, those in other states will have to be concerned that their turn could come next in a way that looks completely different from Sandy or any other storm. Secondly, uh, Sandy uh, wasn't malevolent, although it, it, it sure seemed evil at the time, especially with the Nor'easter following so quickly on the heels of, of Sandy. Uh, Mother Nature is not malevolent. In a cyber attack, we can assume that adversaries will be doing everything they can to monitor restoration operations and intervene in those operations do whatever they can to disrupt the restoration of power, behave intelligently and adaptively in a way that Superstorm Sandy uh, never did. Those are a couple of crucial uh, differences, but there's still another difference. Sandy happened to have the U.S. uh, uh, financial system in its crosshairs. That is, Wall Street, everything associated with the U.S. financial system was at risk in Superstorm Sandy, but that was just bad luck, the luck of the draw. We can assume that adversaries, if they attack the United States, will be attempting to advance political goals to resolve a crisis, to do whatever constitutes a, a war a, as a continuation of politics by other means. They're going to attack targets, because doing so gives them political leverage or accomplishes some some purpose. We should prepare the, to defend the grid accordingly. Not everything is going to be equally important. Just as President Obama made restoration of power to lower Manhattan a priority in Superstorm Sandy because of the risk to financial markets and the U.S. and indeed global economy, We need to continue working to ensure that as we invest in grid resilience and prepare to sustain power, if cyber adversaries attack the United States, we can do so in a way that sustains service for especially critical uh, defense installations, financial institutions, everything else that adversaries might want to uh, bring down in order to accomplish their political objectives.
0: And so as a reminder to listeners, uh, Dr. Stockton was the Assistant Secretary of Homeland Defense and America's Security Affairs. So he was basically the chief advisor to Defense Secretary Panetta on civil issues at that time. And, you know, I, I want to take what you learned in the process of re- responding to Sandy and apply that to cyber attacks, because when you were there, interestingly, right before Sandy hit, you and I actually... um afterward we we talked for an ebook that i was writing on the response to superstorm sandy and you told me a story about visiting new york shortly before sandy hit to talk about potential extreme weather threats to the grid and then sandy destroyed the uh, east coast grid and you were forced to deal with all these issues that the dod hadn't dealt with at that scope So, here we are dealing with um, a lot of theoreticals. We know what many of the threats are. We've seen them enacted in other countries, but largely you're kind of, it seems like you're in the same situation you were before Sandy, where you're dealing with a lot of potential threats and modeling them, but we haven't dealt with one on a grand scale like we're talking about. How do you apply your thinking and then your action from Sandy to? how you prepare for a cybersecurity threat, and then <laughs> respond to it in real time, you think?
2: Well, wonderful question. Uh, and I'm sure your readers are going to have uh, thoughts about this as well. We suffered uh, as a little bit, as in 9-11, from uh, a failure of imagination uh, prior to Superstorm Sandy. And I'll tell you what my failure was. This was my screw-up. I did not believe that there would be a point at which the President of the United States would turn to Secretary Panetta, with me sitting behind uh, Secretary Panetta, and say, the number one job of the Department of Defense is to help restore power to lower Manhattan. That I found shocking. Uh, I uh, believe and continue to believe that the number one job of the Department of Defense is to fight and win America's wars uh, but uh, at that moment in that cabinet meeting uh, the president of the United States who's also of course the commander-in-chief of the United States military decided the top priority for the department was going to be to assist uh, power restoration and uh, that produced um, scrambling as you could imagine it forced innovation uh, For example, uh, under the terrific leadership of FEMA and the Department of Energy, uh, we were able to work together with the power industry during Sandy to stand up an unprecedented public-private coordinating body, the Energy Task Force, in order to help ensure that the DOD assets, aircraft, uh, transportation, uh, other assets, uh, that... Uh, I could use to help uh, support the response were going to the places uh, that that, uh, power engineers and the utilities themselves knew would be most helpful. Um, And that industry effort was led uh, by David Owens uh, on behalf of the power industry as a whole with terrific effectiveness. But uh, innovating in the midst of an event, that's no way to run a railroad, right? Uh, Far better to anticipate before events occur what's going to be required and uh, how we're going to need to move forward together. And that's going to be the subject of a a study I'm uh, writing now, and that is let's imagine what the future is going to hold and have the contingency plans in place and the government-industry collaborative mechanisms that we're going to need in order to sustain power to critical facilities and rapidly restore electric service to uh, all other customers.
1: So if you had a magic wand right now and and within the bounds of reality could – do whatever you need to do in order to to convince that utilities and regulators, policymakers, energy industry participants of the magnitude of this threat and and that something needs to be done about it. What would you ask them all to do
2: right now? Well, I would say uh, first of all, uh, sustain the progress that electric companies and regulators already have underway and accelerate that progress. I believe that the power grid owners and operators are doing a good job of building resilience against current levels of threats, but those threats continue to intensify, and Mother Nature is still able to inflict potentially catastrophic damage, as we've seen in Puerto Rico, and as we definitely would see in a New Madrid uh, seismic zone earthquake or Cascadia, or the other areas, for example, in California, or catastrophic earthquakes could cause liquefaction of the ground on which uh, critical substations and other equipment uh, stands and would produce devastating effects. So let's continue to plan for this. Let's make sure we have uh, the equivalent of a design basis threat That is, an understanding of what is the threat that we need to be ready to handle and build the contingency plans and make the investments necessary to prepare for those kinds of events. That's going to require tough discussions on priorities, on cost recovery, on everything else that's going to be required for progress. Let me give you a prime example. There are a lot of investor-owned utilities out, out there right now who are going to be in the bullseye adversary attacks attempting to take down the power grid. But that's not why shareholders bought their stock. That's not why their board of directors are focusing on uh, the issues uh, for day-to-day profitability. Uh, Because of the nature of the modern world now, private companies are being targeted for attack in a way that's unprecedented uh, and needs creative thinking in order to provide for prioritization, cost recovery, everything else to invest against the attacks to come.
0: Dr. Paul Stockton is Managing Director at Sonicon, a government economic and security advisory firm. Before that, he was Assistant Secretary of Homeland Defense and America's Security Affairs. And Paul, I want to thank you for your time, although I don't know if I should thank you fully because you've sufficiently scared me, but we are really appreciative of you taking the time to be on the show. Do you have any final words to help us sleep at night?
2: Uh, sure. Uh, they, this isn't the time to be scared. It's the time to be aware and to build partnerships between the private sector, government agencies, non governmental organizations. Everybody's a stakeholder in uh, the realm of grid resilience and make progress.
0: Okay, that's all for the show, folks. Shale, one last question for you. Are you more or less scared after this interview?
1: I don't know. I was already pretty terrified. I would say I'm I'm right where I was. I'll sleep like in fits tonight.
0: Well, I'd say your rational fear is pretty damn
1: rational. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I hope, I hope your AI fear is not. Uh, what about you? How do you feel now about cybersecurity on the grid? Uh, I'm definitely fearful,
0: but my fear is easy to discount because I think I suffer from that lack of imagination problem because we haven't been hit with this large scale attack. And I just it's it's like hard to wrap my head around how under threat America might be because we've just never faced anything like the stuff that security experts are talking to talking about as long
1: as you're as long as you're sleeping well I think that's all that matters next year five beautiful children (laughs) (laughs) give us five beautiful stars folks go on itunes
0: that's where we get a majority of our listeners actually and give us uh five stars if, if you like us if you like us of course and give us a review we'd love to hear from you you can always catch us on twitter shale and i are there and uh we love to hear from folks podcasts at greentechmedia.com is our email address We try our best to respond to folks through email, but email is so difficult. It can be hard. So Twitter might be the best place to catch us. And um, we're everywhere. We're on Google Play. We're on TuneIn. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. Anywhere you get uh, your podcasts, you can find us. So make sure to subscribe if you're not a subscriber already and pass this along to your friends and colleagues. Shale, I'm uh, glad we're reconnected. We're sorry to see you go from GTM. It's a sad day here, but our listeners are probably glad that you're still going to be coming into their ears.
1: Yeah, it's it's truly bittersweet for me. Um, it's been an incredible run at GTM, but I'm, I'm really excited to be able to keep doing this podcast every week. I love it. Also, you know, you could have just made up names of podcast players and it would have worked on me. I feel like there's a new one every week that I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Soundface, Earbud. <laughs> podly pod friender yeah, podly.
0: <laughs> I think you should just start making them up at the end of each episode well next week <laughs> we uh, have another edition of what it takes a series that we're releasing in collaboration with the cleantech incubator powerhouse those are both real names Um, In this edition, Emily Kirsch is going to talk with Andrew Birch, the co-founder and CEO of Sungevity, the once-mighty residential solar installer that recently went bankrupt. Shale, you were there. What should listeners anticipate for that
1: one? Ah man, that one's really good. I mean, you know, longevity rose really high and then crashed really fast. And just after situations like that, you very rarely get to hear the behind the scenes story of what it was like for the leaders of those types of organizations. So I I found it really illuminating. I appreciated that Andrew Birch was willing to do that on stage and on a podcast. So it's really good. You should tune in.
0: All right, well, tune in for that one next week. With Shell Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Interchange Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation from Green Tech Media.